Welcome to Westminster Church. I'm Donald Meisel, minister in company with my colleagues to and with the people of this downtown congregation. Today marks the fifth in our series of Thursday noon town hall forums, free and open to the public and gathered under the overarching theme, Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. Now, why, you may ask, is this congregation, in league with other groups and concerned individuals, bringing these well-known, well-respected, well-versed speakers to town to share their concerns, insights, and convictions? It's because we see it as our obligation as part of the community of faith to raise the voice of conscience in the community and to hold up an ethical plumb line, if you will, against which we can measure ourselves as a community and as a nation. It's not that we or our speakers have all the answers, but at least we can agree that it's important to be asking the right questions. Our speaker today is one who for several decades has been asking the hard questions and pursuing the not easy answers. He is Robert McAfee Brown, who has taught at McAllister, at Stamford University, and at Union Theological Seminary in New York. And currently, he is professor of theology and ethics at the Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, California. Dr. Brown lived on the cutting edge of the civil rights movement in the 60s, on the cutting edge of the anti-Vietnam War protest in the 1970s, and he is profoundly concerned about an issue, among others, facing us in the 80s, and concerning which he's here to speak to us now. We're glad to have you here, Dr. Brown. Thank you very much, Dr. Meisel. I'm very glad to be here and to see many friends in this audience from the times when I was once a resident of the Twin Cities. I'm going to speak on the topic, the need for a moral minority, and some of you may have misread that title and assumed that I was going to talk about the moral majority. I am going to make some references to the moral majority in the course of these remarks, but I do not want to concentrate exclusively on that moment. I particularly do not want to have the moral majority setting my agenda or our agendas for the 80s. I think that agenda is somewhat politically naive and theologically unbiblical, and I'll try to footnote that in a little while. But my overall concern this morning is much more how we can relate religion and politics positively. And if along the way we can learn some things from the moral majority about how not to do it, I'm willing to call that a gain. This whole problem of a religious presence on the political scene, which has been highlighted for us in this rather recent emergence of the, of the theological right wing, the problem of religion on the political scene is illustrated for me by a comment from an anonymous 17th century writer, one of my favorite anonymous comments. This writer wrote, 
I had rather see coming toward me a whole regiment with drawn swords than one lone Calvinist convinced that he's doing the will of God. <laughs> now that statement illustrates both the glory and the demonry of Calvinism, and by a not very difficult extension, the potential glory and potential demonry of all political involvement on the part of religiously minded persons. On the one hand, there is something immensely freeing and energizing about feeling that one is doing God's will and that the outcome of one's activity is therefore safe in God's hands. Such an attitude can liberate one to new kinds of courage, to immense risk-taking, even to the point of death. Archbishop Romero of El Salvador, the first anniversary of whose martyrdom we will be remembering next week, is surely an example of this. He became convinced that the junta in his country, the one we are currently supporting, was an instrument of injustice and repression against the poor, and he said so, boldly and loudly, knowing the risks. And soon after he began speaking out, he was gunned down in the very act of saying mass for his people. There have been glorious chapters in the history of faith that have been written and enacted by those who felt that in commitment to God's will, they had to oppose the will of other human leaders. But there can be a demonry as well in the invoking of God's support, which we find exhibited when individuals or groups decide what they want to impose on others and then claim divine sanction for it. This gives them carte blanche to do whatever they feel is necessary to stop their opponents, since their opponents, being opposed to them, are clearly opposed to God as well and do not finally deserve the right to speak or act or persuade. And Christians have often been guilty of this. The Crusades were an example. Christian anti-Semitism is another. And sometimes the Christian willingness to kill, whether in support of a Nazi ideology or extreme nationalism, whether of the Russian or American variety, these are other instances that come to mind. And as I look at the current American religious scene, it is this tendency that seems to me in danger of characterizing this recently emerged religious right, of which moral majority is at least one very clear-cut example. Mr. Falwell, Jerry Falwell, the leader of that movement, states that he knows just what is wrong with our country, and he tells us, and I quote, God has called me to action, I have a divine mandate to go into the halls of Congress and fight for laws that will save America." End of quote. And as this position develops, it turns out that those who disagree with him are really by definition disagreeing with God, since he and not they have access to God's will. Liberals, for example, whom Mr. Falwell abominates, are not just political liberals or theological liberals, they are godless liberals. They are the ones who must be removed from public office since they're not only wrong, but evil. 
what we must have in office are God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians, which is bad news to Jews and secularists. Now, I do not for a moment challenge Mr. Falwell's right or anybody's right to get into the American political process, to work for change, to support candidates, urge people to vote, and all the rest. That's the way the American system works, and the more people that are doing that, the better for the health of the system. And it would be a very perverse logic to claim that only people with whom I agree ought to be engaging in political activity, and I want no part of such an argument. I've taken my own political stands in the past. I intend to keep doing so in the present and future. So can and should everyone of you and everyone else, whether named Billy Graham or Bill Coffin, whether named Jerry Falwell or Robert Drinan. Furthermore, this emergence of the radical right on the political scene means that there's one ancient battle we're not going to have to fight for a while. For most of my adult life, at any rate, people on the theological right have been saying, religion and politics don't mix. The rest of us have been saying they do too mix. And now, for better or for worse, that message has been heard. The question is no longer, do religion and politics mix? The question is simply, what is the nature of the mix? And it's the nature of the mix, as far as groups like Moral Majority are concerned, that is increasingly concerning me, and even on some levels beginning to frighten me. Now let me say just enough about that kind of mix so that I can then step, set the stage in the latter part of these comments for what seems to me a more appropriate alternative. In Christian terms, but I think in terms with which all Jews could also agree, my real complaint about the moral majority's intrusion of the Bible into American politics is that they aren't biblical enough. I do not for a moment concede that they have the Bible on their side and the rest of us are nothing but godless liberals or secular humanists which in Mr. Fowler's lexicon is very close to being either a socialist or a communist. So let me illustrate that in two ways. First of all, it seems to me that the moral majority's biblically inspired political agenda involves a very selective, very partial, and therefore very distorted use of the Bible. They have isolated a set of concerns that they say get to the heart of what is wrong with America. And you know that list. Homosexuality, abortion, pornography. These are the things that are wrong and are destroying our nation. What we need to do, what do we need to be for? Basically, for prayer in public schools and for more bombs. Jesus wants our kids to pray, and he wants the Pentagon to be able to kill more people if necessary. Now, I know that sounds a little crude, but I believe it is. I'm not <laughs> I'm not denying that there are moral dimensions involved in all those issues and that people can take different moral positions in response to them. But the notion that they represent what the Hebrew and Christian scriptures offer us as the key for understanding what is wrong with the world today, such a notion strikes me as grotesque. Take this issue of homosexuality. If one turns to the scriptures as a whole 
to try to come up with their central concerns, homosexuality is going to be very low on such a list, even if indeed it makes the list at all. There are maybe seven very ambiguous verses in the whole biblical canon that even allude to it. And I will any day subordinate that minuscule import of those seven verses, isolated verses, to hundreds and hundreds of places where the scriptures are dealing over and over again with questions of social justice, the tendency of the rich to exploit the poor, the need for all of us to have a commitment to the hungry, the need for nations not to put their major trust in armaments, the concern for the sick, the recognition that all people, whoever they are, are children of God, even if they're Russians or Cubans or Salvadorians. The moral majority, I'm suggesting, creates an agenda and then proceeds to impose that agenda on Scripture by developing little strings of unrelated verses to give divine sanction to the position. Now, as all of those of you who work with the Bible know, you can prove absolutely anything that way. You can make a biblical case for militarism or pacifism, for nationalism or internationalism, for male dominance or for women's rights, though it's a little harder with women's rights, I've got to concede. <laughs> you, can make a case, you can make a case for capital punishment or for letting the prisoners go free. You can make a case for socialism or capitalism simply by selecting the verses very carefully and ignoring all the others. Now, let me make that point in a more positive way, in, in, in a second reaction to moral majority. It seems to be clear there are great and central overriding themes and concerns in the Scriptures. You and I might have slightly different lists of what those themes would be, but there would be certain ones we simply could not ignore if we were going to respond honestly to the texts. There are huge sections, for example, on the dangers of national idolatry, that is to say, making the nation into God, accepting uncritically whatever we have to do as a nation against other nations. Those things, those major emphases stand in very sharp contrast to Mr. Falwell's assessment that we should have done whatever we needed to do to win in Vietnam, because our national honor was at stake. That was the criterion. And I submit that national honor is a criterion the Bible unremittingly attacks. There are long sections in Scripture dealing with the need to be concerned about the poor and the destitute. There are treatments of the virus of racism. There are many recognitions that those with wealth will always be tempted to act repressively against the poor, and so on and so on. And the breathtaking thing to me is that when one looks over the agendas of the moral majority, there's absolutely no mention of such things. There's a kind of total silence. We seem to be living in two different worlds, reading two different books. Let me summarize that difference and in, in this way. It seems to me there's some biblical passages that help to pull together many others that help to encapsulate much of that message. I'd suggest that one such passage is Jesus' famous picture or parable of the Last Judgment. That represents his indictment of what's wrong in our society and how it should be changed. Now remember Mr. Falwell's indictment, pornography, abortion, homosexuality, no prayers in public schools, 
too little money for defense spending. How does this biblical indictment go? In Jesus' assessment, the nations, not just individuals, we need to remember that story of the Last Judgment is addressed to the nations. The nations are called to account, and here are the kinds of things in terms of which the nations will be judged. On whether or not as a nation we gave food to the hungry, whether or not as a nation we gave drink to the thirsty, whether or not as a nation we took in strangers, whether or not as a nation we clothed the naked, whether or not as a nation we visited the sick, whether or not as a nation we went to those in prison, and whether or not as a nation we did these things not just for folks like us, but to the very least of our sisters and brothers. So I say, yes, let the moral majority take an agenda to the American people. Let them call it a message which is based on special concern for the middle class. Let them appeal, if they wish, more to fears than to hopes. Let them make a patriotic pitch to keep America number one at all cost in the arms race. But let them not, I say, call that biblical. Let them not say that is a platform toward which the Jewish and Christian scriptures are pushing us. Well, all right, where do we go? when that's been said. I'm convinced, first of all, it is important to have said it, to clear the air a bit, but then we need to begin to look in some different directions. And I would like to start that looking by rejecting attempts to juxtapose the words moral and majority. I don't think they belong together. I don't think the Jewish and Christian scriptures talk about moral majorities. I think they talk about remnants about minorities. And Christians have a lot to learn from Jews about this. The Hebrew prophets were invariably on the side of the minority. They were taking on the status quo. They were getting into trouble. They never played the numbers game. Amos would never have gotten even third prize in the Bethel Chamber of Commerce competition for promising young dressers of sycamore trees. And you can be sure he never would have maintained a TV rating beyond the first week of a broadcast. There's a professor at Fuller Seminary, Bill Pinnell, who says, you know, the book of Amos is full of quotations, and none of them make good bumper stickers. <laughs> no, in the Jewish Christian perspective, the truth is not likely to be found with the majorities, but with the minorities, the remnants. In the Bible, I think, truth comes in small packages. It was when the early Christians became the moral majority in the Roman Empire around the fourth century that things started going to pieces. Once Constantine recognized Christianity as the official religion, this little oppressed minority began acting like an oppressing majority. The Pope raised armies, conversions were forced, there were pogroms, rights of those who disagreed were suppressed, unbelievers were tortured and killed, and this is a set of policies that, as long as they could, our own Protestant forebears carried on in their day. No, I think the human family has had enough of a taste of what one could call this Christendom mentality in which Christians decide to try to run the show for everybody else. And I don't think we want it back under Constantine or Jerry Falwell or anyone else. But the trouble with moral majorities is that they tend to see themselves as moral monopolies. So I suggest that the need is to build moral minorities, to create 
groups that will try to be a leaven in our national lump, that will say some of the things most people don't necessarily want to hear, that will try to avoid simplistic answers, that will acknowledge complexities, that will seek arenas for debate rather than a fundamentalistic fulmination, and that will try to enlarge our vision beyond national boundaries to global perspectives. So let me now, to conclude, suggest very briefly five characteristics that I think would be appropriate to the moral minority. And I say that since uh, Jews have had a long history of being a moral minority, we Christians have some things to learn from them, and I hope they'll begin to share long years of wisdom with us. But I will not now try to speak for Jews, which would be condescending, but suggest some things that we as Christians out of our own heritage could begin to do to become a moral minority. First, I said a moment ago that the Bible doesn't talk about majorities as much as about remnants. Since the demise of what we've called this Constantinian Christianity, where Christians were running the show, and that demise took place several hundred years ago, only a lot of Christians haven't heard that word yet, since that time, this remnant posture has become both appropriate and descriptive for Christians. We are a small percentage, a remnant of the whole human family, particularly when we look at ourselves globally. But let me suggest even a further refinement of that image. A moral minority might be called a remnant within the remnant. For by and large, institutional Christianity is going to reflect the culture around it more than it will challenge it. But there could be a remnant within that remnant that would find some ways to offer a different model. There's an exciting set of experiences out of the church in Latin America that offers a way of thinking about that model. For centuries, as you know, the Catholic Church in Latin America was at the beck and call of the little group of the wealthy who had all the power, who had all the money, who had all the prestige, and had enough military hardware to keep everybody else in line. But in recent years, the churches have been getting away from that uncritical alliance with those in power. And there have grown up literally tens of thousands of what they call comunidades de basa, base communities or grassroots communities. These people do not wait for the word to come down through an ecclesiastical chain of command. They tackle a local problem, oppression by a local large landholder, or inadequate wages to live on, or the disappearance of someone who's speaking out politically, and they look for ways to act, perhaps 15 or 20 of them together. And they put all this in the context of their ongoing liturgical life, in the midst of prayer, Bible study, the Eucharist. They try to combine what they call reflection and action. They become 11 in the life of the larger church, and hope gradually that thereby the larger church can become 11 in the even larger community. And I think we could create models in our own communities that would take that kind of experiment seriously. Is there a local problem here in Minneapolis that nobody's tackling that needs attention? A small group could begin to deal with it, maybe from within one church, maybe across denominational lines, or by concerned folk who are Christians and Jews and whoever, whatever the nature of the mix calls for. The point is, one doesn't need to be a loner. One also doesn't have to have a huge structure behind one in order to begin to act. 
Now, secondly, what would be the resources such a group could employ? Here, I think we've got a couple of very good things going for us. One of them, as I've already suggested, is the Bible. If we could break out of the kind of culturally conditioned ways we've read the Bible, we would find it an explosive arsenal of materials for creative change. In the last few years, I've had to begin rereading the Bible in the light of what I've learned from Christians in such places as Latin America, trying to see it through their eyes, hear it with their ears. And I'm amazed at what is in this book. We tend to spiritualize away <clears throat> all the rough edges. When the Bible talks about good news to the poor, <clears throat> we immediately interpret that to mean spiritually poor, spiritually impoverished, and we're all part of that, so there's no rough edge left. Now, I'm sure that's part of what was meant, but it seems to me very clear what it also meant, that when Jesus was talking about the poor, he also meant the materially poor, the really impoverished, uh, who didn't have enough to eat, who didn't have enough food, who didn't have enough power that when he said the poor have the good news preached to them, that's part of what he meant, those people down on the bottom of the pile. What if liberty to the oppressed, which was another part of Jesus' message, means those living not simply under the oppression of neuroses or other middle-class ailments, but those who are oppressed as victims of economic and political and military oppression? We have a phrase in, that's in Jesus' sermon at Nazareth, which talks about proclaiming what our translations call the acceptable year of the Lord. That washes right over us. What was that referring to? That was the Jubilee year, which is about as political as you can get. Debts were to be forgiven, slaves were to be freed, land was to revert to its former owners. There's plenty of stuff within this old black book for a minority posture uh, to emerge. So we could also realize that we've dealt with our own past Christian history in very selective ways. We've known all about that church that emerged triumphantly in the fourth century, and a lot of people wish it were still around. But before that, Christians were this little minority, a tiny handful, quite analogous to what we in our world today are becoming. Maybe those first centuries are a clue to what we should be about. Welcoming the down and outers, challenging Caesar, cutting across lines that divide people off from one another, being the place where those whom the world calls worthless are treated as having infinite worth. We look at the Reformation, we Protestants, and we trot out Luther and Calvin and maybe Thomas Hooker or some other Anglican, and we forget that there were other people involved in the Reformation, Quakers, Mennonites, Anabaptists, Diggers, Levelers, the crazies, we like to think, who were doing such things as challenging the right and the fitness of Christians going to war, who were challenging the right of governments to be the definers of conscience, who were casting their lot with the poor. There's a whole lot in that heritage we have buried that maybe we need to recover. So there's a biblical and a historical resource we could bring to bear. The third thing the moral minority could stress, perhaps the most important thing in the time in which we live, would be the necessity of a global perspective. This world is now just too small to allow for anything else. And to look at the world simply in terms of what is good for the United States is finally going to be self-defeating put the main stress and priority on more weapons 
as the national debate is now suggesting, is surely likely to increase the likelihood that we'll use them. A perspective can no longer be national or regional, it has to be global. And in terms of the remnant within the remnant, the great thing, it seems to me, that we have going for us is that we don't have to start out and create that global community from scratch. It already exists. There is a little network of courageous people all over the world, some of whose courage might even begin to rub off on us. I've been fortunate in the last few years to have visited some parts of the world I never expected to get to. Chile, Argentina, Cambodia, Laos, Kenya, South Africa, Russia, India. What impresses me is that in places where it is not expedient to do so and involves great risks, little groups of people speak and act in defiance of what repressive governments demand of them. They refuse a sheerly nationalistic perspective. They insist on seeing who they are in relation to everyone else. Dom Helder Camara in Brazil, Alan Bosak and Desmond Tutu in South Africa, many courageous folk in repressive regimes in Chile and Argentina, which our administration is about to reward with more shipments of arms, ministers in South Korea, who are whoever or wherever. There is the moral minority where people are taking their lives, putting their lives on the line every time they speak. This brotherhood, this sisterhood of the remnant within the remnant, the moral minority already exists, and we could be empowered by them. If they can risk their lives, we might at least risk a little bit of our reputations. That suggests a fourth thing the moral minority might become. It could be that group in our society which is genuinely committed to the powerless and the voiceless. The World Council of Churches and Pope John Paul II have recently been describing the task of the church as being, as they say, the voice of the voiceless, insisting that the church must speak on behalf of those who cannot speak, act on behalf of those who cannot act. I now think we have to improve on that. Rather than just trying to be the voice of the voiceless, the church, it seems to me, or at least the moral minority in the church, must be that place where the voiceless are empowered to speak on their own behalf and are guaranteed a hearing. Instead of the church speaking through some kind of microphone to the world on behalf of the voiceless, the church must be the place where the microphone is offered to those who haven't been able to gain access to it. Now, you'd have to decide what this might mean in Minnesota. Who are the powerless here? Indians? Members of other minority groups? Women? A moral minority would try to see to it that the ones without representation, the ones denied a hearing, the ones written off by the rest of the society, could be heard and taken seriously and empowered. Fifth and finally, I think a moral majority must, as I've been implying, set its own agendas. You may not like the ones I've been suggesting so far. Certainly, there can be others. That would be one thing to deal with, with among members of a moral minority. But our agendas must not be set by the moral majority movement. We must not fall into a trap of single-issue politics 
or politics narrowly conceived around a tiny set of issues. I find it kind of morally oppressive to be told again and again that some kind of obsession about other people's sex life is the burning issue of the day when the majority of the human family is going to bed hungry every night. Or to be told to rally around getting prayers back into school when millions of people are unable to find jobs or get minimal help if they're unemployed and disadvantaged. So I hope we could find ways to begin to rally around the problems where the whole human family is hurting, the mad escalation of the arms race, the need for more equitable distribution of food, coming to terms with denials both abroad and at home, of basic human rights to things like education and medical care and jobs and all the rest. And I think we need to do this in a context which provides a forum for seeking the good of all, not just small segments of the population, trying to present issues without demagoguery or cheating, acknowledging that problems are complex and that simplistic solutions will be misleading and wrong, and acknowledging also that ambiguities abound not only within the positions of those with whom we disagree, but within our own positions as well. With some such way of engaging in political life, we might be able to create a moral minority that could propose convictions without arrogance, insight without absolutism, commitment without coercion, and democracy without demagoguery. Thank you. Earlier this morning, Dr. Brown and I came in while Dr. Berriman was playing the organ, and uh, you had a question about what uh, piece of music he was playing. You'd been trying to recollect it, and uh, you were helped by him. And then I recall something you had written in your book recently about uh, the pleasures of, you know, walking uh, on a beautiful morning and seeing nature in its, all its splendor and listening to good music and, and how you put that together with other feelings you had about people who were wanting and hurting. Maybe you'd like to share a little bit of that, of that with us. Okay, that's another dimension of this problem. One can't say everything in 30 minutes. <laughs> if there had been another 30 minutes, I would have wanted to pursue a little more. You know, how do we get the personal resources, you know, to hang in there? I mean, I know I see a lot of faces out here, people who struggled through the 60s and 70s, and it's very discouraging. One gets tired, almost burned out. How does one keep, uh, keep some set of, uh, of, of one's own vitality alive? Uh -huh. And for me, I guess it's posed very, very strongly by really my favorite secular saint, uh, Albert Camus. He was not a Christian, but he says a lot of things Christians need to hear. And he said something to the, to the effect, there, are beauty, there is beauty and there are the oppressed. However difficult the task, I would like never to be faithless to one in the name of the other. Uh, the dimension of beauty, of music, uh, all that is part of what human life is all about. And we need the nurturing that gives in order to deal with the kinds of questions I'm raising this morning. And maybe we can be saved from some of our own attempts at a kind of a demagoguery by seeing ourselves in the perspective that a Beethoven string quartet or a magnificent organ will provide. So that's another part of the, uh, of the concern, but that's an, an agenda item really for, for yeah. another whole, uh, whole Right. We'll, we'll get you back for that one. <laughs>
Uh, here's a, here's a, a, a nice little one for you. Would you comment on the U.S. stance on El Salvador? Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I, I feel very strongly. I could almost say that my comment could be comprised by the words expletive deleted. I'm very upset at what, uh, what is happening there, be, uh, not, not because I necessarily bring a very fancy kind of total political analysis to what's going on there, although I try to do some of that. But I have been in fairly close contact with a lot of people in the, in the Latin American church uh, and with the, with the Christians in El Salvador, mainly, of course, Roman Catholics. And we have some pretty good lines of communication, I think. Uh, uh, the Marinol uh, uh, priests and sisters have been very active there. You know, three of them were among those who were murdered a few weeks ago. Uh, people who have been very close to Archbishop Romero and others and the word that comes from all the Christians whom we trust is don't send us, don't send any military aid. They're not saying send a lot of guns to the frente or anything like that. They're simply saying don't try to decide what's good for us. Let us work out our own life and destiny. Let us be the ones to decide what kind of government we want. And we can do that a lot better if you aren't interfering and deciding that you're going to support one group uh, against the others and simply leading to the prolongation of the struggle to more and more deaths. As they say when they hear the new uh, comments out of Washington about how Cuba and Russia are sponsoring this revolution, they say, we didn't have to hear from the Cubans and the Russians that we're oppressed. <laughs> we have known that for 50 years. Uh, this is not an outside fomented uh, activity. This is something within the life of the Salvadoran people, uh, and we would like simply to be able to work that out without the United States or anybody else moving in to try to make those determinations for us. So that's, mm -hmm. that's about where I come out on that. This person says, is the religious right, in your judgment, attempting to create a Christian America, a theocracy? I think yes. Uh, despite the fact that in many of his public appearances, uh, uh, Mr. Falwell uh, says no. But when you look at the way, I've, I've, I will, I'll try to document that because I have some quotes from his book called Listen America, in which he describes what we, what we need on the, uh, on the scene. It's, 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 I'd, rather, I'd rather quote him directly than paraphrase, yes. Um, in terms of the fact, you know, of targeting various candidates that they want out of public office because they agree with certain items of their agenda, now he says such things as, if a man is not a student of the Word of God, does not know what the Bible says, I question his ability to be an effective leader. If a person is not a Christian, he's inherently a failure. Most of our leaders have been blinded by the intention of the communists because these leaders, our leaders, are in spiritual darkness. When we as a country again acknowledge God as our creator and Jesus Christ as the savior of mankind, we will be able to turn this nation around economically as well as in every other way. I can't make that kind of thing mm -hmm. add up to much other than an agenda that the only people appropriately to be in public office and lead us are those who share the same theological perspective as Mr. Falwell. Those are the only ones who really can be trusted. If one talks about God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians, one can be sure that Mr. Falwell uh, has his own definition of who qualifies and who doesn't qualify under that kind of rubric. So I see it as an attempt to, to bring into our national life a whole framework and ethos 
in which the privileged position is going to be not only that of Christians, but of a certain group of Christians uh, over whom he will exercise the final sort of uh, authority and veto power. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is the third question I have. It seems a little off the track of, of our main agenda here, but what is your feeling about the course, court case regarding creation, creation versus evolution in the schools in California? This seems to be unbiblical, anti-biblical. That is, that is related in the sense that here again, it, uh, a group of people want to, uh, to propose uh, a certain way of understanding uh, the, his the history of our planet. Uh, and who feel that uh, the evolutionary theory is uh, shot full of holes, it doesn't hold up, and that creationism, by which they mean a literalistic account of Genesis, is, is, is the truth. Now, I think most Christians would agree there are incredibly important insights in that Genesis story. But if we're going to have to make that geologically, uh, a, a geological statement as well as a theological statement, we are really in some trouble. Uh, and, and to see that creation story in terms of what it means about purposiveness in the world, about ways in which we, we fail to do what as human beings we're called upon to do, the whole understanding of what went wrong in the garden with Adam and Eve, those are fabulously important kinds of insights. Uh, and I think they were written uh, in those terms. Those, as you know, are fairly late parts of the Old Testament canon. Uh, they were later reflections when the, when the Jews came to the place of acknowledging the lordship of Yahweh in history, God is lord over all in, in what was happening in their history. They reflected that the whole human scene must somehow have been created and be dependent upon God. Uh, and these were attempts uh, not to say what happened uh, the, the moment after uh, God decided to create a world, uh, but reflections on what it means to say that the world is somehow in the providential control of God. That's a hard enough to pull off even in, in sort of mythological terms. But when one says that's the, the, the Genesis account represent the geological uh, story uh, and that all the scientific details there somehow have to be absolutely right on target rather than being a very uh, inspired, creative, poetic attempts uh, to deal with, with what the world is all about, then we're in very serious trouble. It's confusing uh, a certain kind of attitude toward the world, of which the whole scientific venture is a very important attitude, but trying to say that's the same thing as what the writers of Genesis were getting at. I think there's a basic confusion there. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I have a sneaking suspicion we are a rerun of the 30s in Germany. I wonder if you could say a few words about fascism and moral majority. Yeah, I, want to, I don't want to get demagogic here. I mean, I think it's very important not to start too quickly jumping into uh, analogies. But I think we can be very much instructed by the story of what happened in, in Germany in the 30s. I felt this very much during the, uh, during the Vietnam era. Uh, I feel that whenever there's a resurgence of racism in our country, I feel it very much now because uh, whether Christians know it or not, there's a resurgence of a very ugly kind of anti-Semitism in our country, which is nurtured and inspired uh, out of what happened in Germany in the 30s. And I think that in any culture, uh, anti-Semitism is the first kind of bellwether sign one better look to as to whether the culture is sick or not. When anti-Semitism begins to come back into the picture, uh, that culture is in bad shape. And there's a great deal of this going on. The incidence of this is recurring. And particularly, uh, I presume this audience today here is basically a, a, a Christian. We have a tremendous responsibility as Christians because we have been so often 
historically as a church complicit in the development of that, uh, of that kind of anti-Semitism. So that's one point at which the, uh, the, new, uh, the new virulence begins to emerge. Now, in other ways, too, I think we need to hear that story, particularly in terms of what I was talking about in my prepared comments. What happened in Germany was that, as you know, when Hitler came to power, just about everybody capitulated. The universities did. The business community did. Most of the church did. But there was a moral minority, a group that came together, called themselves the Confessing Church, and took a very clear stand that they could not say yes to the lordship of Jesus Christ and yes to the lordship that Errol Hitler was demanding of them. Uh, the word Führer, leader, you know, Martin Niemöller wrote his book called Gott ist mein Führer, God is my leader, not Adolf Hitler. He spent the war, as you know, in the concentration camps. To the degree that as our new situation in this country unfolds and more and more uh, we pit ourselves in a replay of the Cold War scenario, the more we decide we know what's best for Latin America or for the Philippines or somewhere else, the more we're trying to really thrust our perspective as the one to which others must be craven before, uh, we will be drifting in directions that sooner or later can be best described by the word fascism. I had a marvelous statement on this a number of years ago, which uh, I think is important for us in the 80s. He said about where he and his friends were, he said, we must fight their falsehood with our truth, but we must also fight the falsehood in our truth. And it's when that latter thing is gone that you have, in effect, what we would call fascism, that the enemy is always everywhere else but, but within. Mm. I think you're... This is in keeping with what, something you've just said. We're told by Christians in Latin America that the church must work for change, not in Latin America, but in the United States. Where are the points where North American Christians should work for change? It's, it's very interesting. You know, there's, there's a considerable new kind of attention being given throughout the world Christian community to what's happening uh, in Latin America. And many people have rightly gotten very involved in that kind of concern. I plead guilty without, without shame to that charge. Many things are happening there we need to know about. But when one goes and talks to people there, Dom Helder Kammerer, whom I mentioned, for example, this courageous archbishop in Recife, Brazil, he says, don't come down and try to start a revolution for us. <laughs> Go back home and work to bring about changes in the policies of your government which will make it unnecessary for us to have to have that kind of a bloody revolution. Now, what's behind that statement <clears throat> is something that is very hard for most of us in North America to hear, but we need to be willing to listen when our sisters and our brothers in that Christian community in, in Latin America are saying, look, there are a lot of people down here who are suffering very badly, and part of it is due to the fact that we've got these little military cliques who are running the country and deciding what's good for us. But part of it also is that those military cliques are kept in power by your country, by the State Department, by the Pentagon, by many business interests. So you have an investment in seeing what you can do to change the conditions that work so oppressively on us. I say, that's very hard for us to hear, and I acknowledge that. I'm not trying to dump 
guilt sort of indiscriminately on, on, on everybody in, uh, in, in this church today. But it is a position we have to hear because it is a perception of who we are that we really cannot see from our own perspective. They're not saying, you know, people in the boardrooms of corporations are sitting around trying to figure out how to make babies starve to death. They're not saying, you know, there are a lot of evil people up there who are just gung-ho to spoil life for us. They are saying, in the way in which the relationships work between our countries, one of the tragic fallouts is that there is an increase rather than a decrease of poverty. We give a great deal of help to Brazil. Brazil has what's called the economic miracle. The gross national product soars magnificently. But that's only a, a miracle on the graphs because almost all of that, new, um, the, of that new capital that's come in, the new, the new uh, purchasing power is limited to the little tiny segment on top of the heap. The plight of the poor in Brazil is worse than it was 10 years ago before the economic miracle. So there are a great many things here in which we have to hear perceptions that initially will be threatening to us, may often seem quite hostile, and yet when one looks at and knows about the the appalling conditions of the majority of people in a place like that, we have to take seriously that in a global community there are some things we could do uh, to begin to change that. I do not consider the issues of the moral majority tiny. These issues are basic to our lives and the poorest to the most intelligent can understand. Where has secular humanism gotten us in the schools? And would you want the Soviet Union to take over Central America? There's a good broad. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, are number, there are a number of things. Uh, uh, that's several questions at once. <laughs> no, I, I'll say very directly, I don't want the Soviet Union to take over in Central America. I also don't want the United States to take over in Central America. I mean, I think that poses the issue. Mm -hmm. it, it poses the issue finally in the, uh, in, in the wrong terms. We should hear very carefully what a very courageous man, who I do not think before the last few weeks had ever had occasion to be very courageous, but Ambassador White from El Salvador. Here's this career diplomat who's given his life to, to our, uh, our implementation of our foreign policy overseas. And he comes to a moment of truth in El Salvador and says, we shouldn't be sending help there. And he's fired, he's through. He has put his career on the line and his, his professional career has been destroyed because for him there was a wrong perception we were bringing to bear on that scene. And he who had lived in that scene was trying to help us hear how it is that the Salvadorians look at it. So it is not a question of saying who's going to dominate in El Salvador, Russia or the United States. The question is can we allow the Salvadorians to make that decision for themselves? Now, we must also be honest and candid, I think, and acknowledge that a solution to which the Salvadorians will come to by themselves will not be a rerun of laissez-faire capitalism. There will be parts of the way they want to organize that very tiny country in ways that will not be like the way we have always conceived it should be done. We've got to see that in different situations, different cultures, different groups of people, there are other ways in which political, social, economic life may need to be organized than the way that we have found a congenial and, and, and so, uh, so supportive to so many uh, people in this country. There's got to be that kind of openness. Now, there's another part of the question, which I haven't really gotten to. Where has secular humanism uh, gotten us? 
terms of schools and so forth. I think there's a real problem uh, about uh, how we're going to re recreate uh, vitality in, uh, in our public schools. I don't profess to be uh, an expert on that. Uh, I also don't believe that, uh, that imposing uh, prayers on that scene uh, is any kind of a panacea, particularly when we have people like the chairman of the Southern Baptist Convention assuring us that God doesn't hear the prayers of Jews. It's an appalling statement that he later finally did retreat from uh, a little bit. But uh, when the moral majority is talking about prayers in schools, they're going to mean Christian prayers. They're going to mean prayers that have passed through the filter of their uh, decision of what's appropriate and so forth. I think that, that becomes ultimately uh, more divisive uh, than helpful. I think it's very dangerous for people who stand within a religious perspective to decide that this demon of secular humanism uh, is, 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 is the heart of the problem. We better be glad that now and then the secular humanists keep the, uh, the Christians from, from exerting too much control, keep this kind of balance. The thing I think that is great about our religious scene in the United States is precisely uh, what's called the pluralistic nature of our society. No single group has enough power and clout to dictate to everybody else. And we went through a time uh, back before about 1960 when uh, the Protestants were scared to death. Someday the Catholics were going to be 51%. Oh, the agendas, you know, hotlines from the White House to the Vatican, um, no more public schools, only parochial schools and everything. Well, we know that, that that has turned out not to be an accurate description of what those fears were at one time. But nobody wants anybody, I think, in terms of religious perceptions to be so overwhelmingly the top of the percentages that they can begin to call the shots for everybody else. And, and it's the, this leaven of, of the so-called secular humanists, I think, that sometimes has helped uh, to keep uh, Christians a, a little more honest about the fact that they are not entitled to decide exactly what is good for everybody else. So I want to keep that pluralistic uh, situation alive. Um, I do not want to see a Christian political party. Uh, I want to see people with all kinds of similar concerns able to work together. We will not agree on all things. Catholics and Protestants will have a lot of difference, maybe say on an issue like abortion, and maybe they can be very close together on an issue like civil rights or the, the rights of minority peoples. Those kinds of coalitions will come and in a sense go, but let no one of them ever become so powerful that it can decide for everybody else what is appropriate for the rest of us. Thank you. We've had a, uh, a notice that uh, Reverend R. Allen James uh, should call his church immediately. There's an urgent uh, matter. Comment on the capitalist system in relation to justice for all the human family. <laughs> Serious question, but we realize, realize it's a very big one. Now, I'm not an economist, and I, I can not tread here with the kind of confidence I would like. Um, and I think it's very important not to just categorically make very broad, sweeping statements. I'd have to start by saying, uh, you know, where I come from, in a sense, I mean, the capitalist system has been pretty good to me. I mean, I have had, from the point of view of not ever having to worry very much about starving and so forth, I've, I've had a sort of good life. There have been enough comforts in my life so that I have not felt up against the wall. So in that sense, it's been, it's been beneficial to me. And one of the hard things I've had to begin to learn, particularly as I began not only to know some people from Latin America, but to begin to get to know Hispanics and blacks more in our own culture, is that they can't say that about our system. They cannot say that it has been good to them. And I have to begin to hear that. 
that there are a lot of things in the system which work incredibly wonderful benefits for some, but not for all, and probably not even for most. I say, that's the kind of statement that needs to be tested, and one has to be able to engage in discussion back and forth about that. Probably almost everyone in this room is in the situation I'm of having been more or less the beneficiary of this system. Our, our concern, therefore, must be to be willing to be critical at points where the system works hardships on others. And I have to begin to ask whether the, a, a basic assumption that competition is the rule of life, is that really consonant with the Christian gospel? Uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's a hard reality in a fallen world, but uh, the notion that we are meant to compete rather than somehow to find increasing ways to cooperate and work together, there's a, there's a, there's a tension point there with which, with which I have to struggle. So I have to look very seriously at the fact that many of the people who in other parts of the world and in this country in the minority cultures are saying, maybe there's a better way to do it. We've at least got to, we've at least got to explore that. Or we've got to see what kind of changes there could be at least within the present system to make it more equitable to those who are sometimes uh, victimized by it. And certainly as people in the, other, in the rest of the world look at us, see, they tend to, to put in one package, you know, capitalism, Christianity, our foreign policy, uh, what we do domestically about uh, minority groups and so forth, these are all part of the same thing. So it's not that there's just one point, like the economic system, that if that's transformed, everything else will be okay. But all those, all those intermingling uh, kinds of things that dominate our lives all have to be subject, I'd say, to a kind of scrutiny that we have often been very timid uh, about making. Maybe to some of you, I seem very far out. To some of you, I may seem as if I'm really uh, walking on eggs and being very, very careful. Uh, I, I, want, I want to have uh, the moral minority or the church the place where one can really look at these issues, where one can really raise critical questions and be able to do it without saying one critical thing about our system and immediately getting labeled a socialist or a communist or something like that. I mean, a scare word, whatever it is being used, uh, as a way to avoid coming to grips with the issues. I, I, I appreciate that the question can be asked, uh, and I think it's a question we need to keep asking uh, and exploring and letting all the different variant assessments, pro and con, be part of uh, what uh, characterizes our life together. Thank you, Dr. Brown. I think we've just about run out of time. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Brown, for coming to us, for being a reasoned and impassioned voice of conscience. Just a couple of quick reminders. Uh, you may buy a tape for the, uh, of this program from us or through uh, public radio. This program will be rebroadcast at 2 on public radio or Minnesota Public Radio at 2 o'clock Saturday afternoon as well as over FM next week at a time to be uh, announced. Um, our next... Thursday noon open forum will be Thursday, April 30th at noon. Edson Spencer will be the speaker, Ethical Considerations in Managing a Business. We hope you'll be back with us. Thank you for coming today. <laughs>